Well, in the June of, this was some time ago, 1985, uh, two very accomplished climbers, uh, Simon Yates and Joe Simpson, had just succeeded in reaching the top of a very remote 21,000-foot peak in the Andes. And the story of their climb is quite harrowing. In fact, they had no option to turn back after they got to a certain point because the danger was so real. So they reached the summit of this peak in this mounting storm. And so they just have a few brief moments to stand there together and enjoy their success, and then they need to start descending. And the weather is deteriorating. It becomes whiteout conditions. They're very high, very far from help. And in that storm... Joe Simpson fell off an ice cliff and shattered his leg. Now suddenly with this injury, all of that satisfaction of reaching that summit was gone. Now it seemed his survival was unlikely. In fact, this appeared to be a death sentence. But Yates, refusing to leave his friend's side, even though Simpson thought he would, for hours upon hours, risked his own life with their rope lowering his partner down as far as he could and then sliding down with no belay himself in danger. And in this whole time, the only anchor that Yates had was they were digging out a seat in the steep snow face. No serious protection in the ground because they'd used it all climbing. So they keep doing this, and they'd almost reached this glacier below. They descended almost 3,000 feet. It was now dark, and as Simpson was sliding down the rope with howling wind and storm, he had no way of telling his partner, hey, stop, I'm about to go over a cliff. So there he is in the darkness, hanging off a cliff, and his body weight is causing his partner to start losing his seat, and soon they're going to be pulled off, both of them, presumably to their death. So suddenly, Yates has this really grim decision to make. Do I cut the rope, or do we both fall to our death? And so in a moment, his knife pierced the rope. He hoped that Simpson was only going to fall a short way and would be okay. But in fact, he fell quite a ways, and below him there happened to be a giant crevasse that he fell into. Sounds fun, right? Makes you want to go climb the mountains. So here's Simpson. He's now alive, surprisingly, but he's alone He's severely frostbitten, practically starving because he had ran out of food on the way up the mountain. He's essentially crippled from his injuries, and he's trapped in this deep crevasse with no way for his partner to know he was alive, and his partner assumed he must be dead. So what follows is one of the most amazing stories, I think, in all of climbing history. In fact, they've made a movie about it. There's a book on this called Into the Void. But somehow in his exhaustion in... Pain, he describes as blinding and disorienting, and his hypothermia injury. Simpson notices above him this tiny ray of light, uh, meaning there was he could see the surface of this crevasse. But the only way to get there was actually to go down, so he lowers himself deeper to get on this ramp. Hours and hours go by of effort, and finally he pops to the surface. But between him and survival, since his partner thought he was gone, were three miles of cliffs and boulder fields and glaciers with more crevasses. And somehow, he hopped, he hobbled, and he says he mostly crawled for three days. 
And the amazing thing is he arrived back in camp as his partner and the rest of their team were getting ready to break camp and leave in their sorrow. Just about missed him. But there he was saved. Now, I'm amazed when I read stories like this because they are amazing. Um, Or I think of people like Shackleton. Uh, Maybe you know the story of their ship in 1914 that they were on an expedition in the South Pole and they got caught in the ice flows and their ship gets crushed and they spend 20 months in the South Pole area and he doesn't lose a person. They self-rescue in their lifeboats. And, and as I think about stories like this, you know, the obvious question is, how do people do that? Like, what? how do you not just give up? It seems simple, but it's certainly not easy. They refuse to give way to despair. And instead, the consistent thing is they seem to hope that somehow this is going to work out. Doing the next thing towards their safety, towards their survival, whether that's crawling the next foot or putting a lifeboat into the open sea. Hope is powerful. Hope is underestimated. In fact, scientifically, it's shown that hope is associated not only with greater happiness, but with academic achievement, with work performance. Even mortality rates are affected by hope. Hopeful patients have higher levels of dopamine and endorphins that promote their well-being, even fight pain. Individuals with high hope levels see barriers and challenges to over, as challenges to overcome, and they work towards doing that, whereas people with low hope levels often see the same challenge or roadblock as something that can't be passed. And at least one study shows that people who grow up in a household that's void of hope have reduced ability for their brain to even produce dopamine. It's fascinating. Hope is far more valuable than we give it credit for. It's like this small flame that can't be extinguished regardless of the conditions that we face. The flip side of this is most of the worst pain we feel in life is a result of putting our hope in the wrong things. Things that fail us, whether that's a person whether that's a job, whether that's getting into a certain school, when those hopes don't work out, it can be devastating. But there is a sure hope that Peter writes about. He calls it a living hope. It's a powerful thing. And, And Peter writes of this to believers who were facing abuse by their bosses. They were facing threats, some of them from their spouses. They were being mocked by their neighbors. And yet Peter points their eyes towards their hope. This is found in 1 Peter 1. I'll put it on the screen for us. Now Peter writes to people who are suffering. And he starts with, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, 
He says, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. A living hope, an inheritance that can't be diminished. A God who is faithful and good. Peter says this hope brings rejoicing even as we face struggles and difficulties. Now, a couple weeks ago, Greg gave a great definition of hope. I referenced it last week. See if I get it right, Greg. Uh, Hope is the active expectation of good based upon the character of God. The active expectation of good based upon the character of God. This hope is stronger than circumstances. And the question before us this morning in this Advent season is how do we tap into that reservoir of strength? How do we find that resilience that only comes from hope? Now, in the Christmas story, we find what I'm convinced are terrifying circumstances. You heard Mary's song earlier. We find hope there. For all we know, Mary was leading a normal life. She lived in a small town, probably the kind of place where everybody knew everybody's business. She was preparing to get married to Joseph. In fact, as a betrothed couple, in many ways, they were already legally married. Joseph was likely preparing their home and add-on to his parents' house. That was the custom. And then at last, they would come together and celebrate their wedding and start their life. There's nothing to suggest in any way that Mary saw what was coming when this angel interrupts her otherwise normal life. Now, this is Luke's account of the interaction. This is in Luke chapter 1. You probably are familiar with this story, but we read in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember, Elizabeth and Zechariah were promised a son even in old age. He would be John the Baptist. But in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, a little town, by the way, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Sounds good, right? But her response is she's greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I would suggest that any of us, if suddenly faced with an angel, would probably be terrified. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will not end. Mary asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, I would suggest this was terrifying. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. 
And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Good words to remember. Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then that's it. The angel leaves. Now we're maybe inoculated to this because we're familiar with it in the Christmas story. But again, I would suggest to us this was quite terrifying. This is incredible news. You know, the angel says, Mary, you're going to give birth miraculously to a son whom God is going to make king, the king, the promised king that everyone has been waiting for. It's incredible news, but also her life is suddenly turned on its head. In one moment, Mary's preparing for her wedding, and in the next, things get really complicated. Don't miss the response that Luke records to us. What happens next? It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Why does she hurry? Why does she rush away? And not just to the hills nearby, but these are the hills of Judah. Nazareth, where Mary is, is in northern Israel. Judah refers to the southern part of Israel. This is uh, likely a three to five day journey that Mary takes to get to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Probably a dangerous trip. Certainly not one she planned on. Now, why does Mary respond to this news by hurrying across a dry desert running for the hills? Now, there are a couple of probable explanations. First, since she clearly heads to Elizabeth's house, she might be seeking to see for herself that this thing the angel mentioned has happened. She might also think Elizabeth is the only one who's going to understand and believe her. After all, a young woman unexpectedly pregnant saying that God did this miraculous thing is, was no more believable then than it would be now. So Mary shows up at her house, worn out. Perhaps along the way she was re- rehearsing what she was going to, to say to explain things to her relative. Certainly she was still wrapping her mind around everything. And there Mary arrives at Elizabeth's door. And Elizabeth has this Holy Spirit-filled moment. And she cries out, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, I don't know if this happened right in the doorway, but I can only imagine when Mary heard those words, it was incredible relief to her. I mean, consider the swirling questions she knows are coming that she'll face. Would Joseph, would anyone else for that matter, believe her? Verse 56 tells us that Mary stayed for three months. Again, why? It could be at least in part to see the birth of John. However, we also know that Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph. And there's nothing in the text to suggest that he knows yet, that he's been visited by that angel and she's blown out of town. This isn't an easy situation. It isn't an easy story like we picture Christmas. So many questions, so many what-ifs, so many 
probable problems lying ahead. And yet in the midst of this, I, I want to read again. You heard this earlier, but, but this is this song that comes forth from Mary's heart. It begins with, my soul glorifies the Lord. What a great way to respond, right? And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's words are words of hope. She's expecting good based on the character of God. In the midst of what was uncertainty and difficulty. In that moment, she turns her attention to who God is. Not just what God could do, but who God is. God is her Savior. God is mindful of her. God has not forgotten. God not only will, but already has done great things, she says. And she remembers what God has already done. That God has performed mighty deeds in the past. That God has brought down unjust rulers. That God's provided for the hungry and helped her people. And has always remembered to be merciful. Now notice what's interesting is that Mary's song isn't about how the circumstances are going to play out. There's nothing in there about, and he's going to tell Joseph what's going on and everyone will understand. This isn't a fairy tale sort of thing, but rather in the midst of the questions, in the midst of the unknowns, this is what she sings of. And we know if we continue in the story, but that the circumstances will be anything but fairy tale. She's going to be forced to travel in the midst of the third trimester of her pregnancy because of an oppressive government. They're going to be overlooked by the people around them, forced to give birth even in a very difficult place and in hard circumstances. And then later, her family is going to be forced to flee to a foreign country for their safety. I don't think Mary's hope was in the way the circumstances would play out. But rather it was the expectation that in whatever came, there would be good because of God and who God is. Now the great thing about hope is that it doesn't rely on our IQ or our income or our education or our background. As one author wrote, hope is an equal opportunity resource. We all have access to it. The problem, however, is when we either let go of hope or we place our hope in the wrong things. 
We hope for circumstances so often or for a person or for money to come through. And often those things let us down. Those circumstances don't play out like we would hope. Now, Paul certainly knew of those realities. He felt faced all sorts of difficulty. He knew of hopes not realized in his own life. And yet, in Romans chapter 5, one of my favorite passages, what does he write? He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And notice this next sentence, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. By the way, hope comes from unlikely places, doesn't it? Hope does not put us to shame. Some translations say does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I love those words that Paul writes, that we can boast in the hope, not of what God does necessarily, but the glory of God, who God is, God's character. Hope can be produced even in the very circumstances we would wish away when we're anchored to the character of God. And Paul writes that this hope does not put us to shame, does not disappoint us. The idea is that it will not let us down. So a question that I don't think we consider often enough is what is our hope in? We put it somewhere. Sometimes we divide it, sort of hedge our bets, right? I mean, you made it through the week, you got up this morning, you got here. I imagine your hope is in something. Maybe it's hope that that raise is going to come that's due or hope that you'll get that thing you want for Christmas. Hope that the person you love will reconcile with you. Hope that your family will just get along for once. Maybe it's hope that you won't be alone or hope that your health will resolve itself. Those are real things. But if we're only hoping for outcomes, for circumstances to come out a certain way rather than hoping in the one who is good, believing regardless of circumstance that we can expect good because of God's character, if our hope is only in the outcome, friends, we're destined for disappointment. And yet so often it's easy to get caught in that, isn't it? True hope anchored in God, actually shines brightest in our difficult moments. A number of years ago, Jen and I had the opportunity to go to Haiti. For a number of reasons, was greatly impacted. I had never seen the difficulty and despair that exists in that place. There we were in, in Grand Guave, Haiti, among people who had nothing. And when I say nothing, most of them lived in closet-sized one-room houses with dirt floors and one mattress that the family shared. They dealt with realities like scabies in their homes, which still kind of makes me crawl saying that word. They were most of the time hungry. 
Unemployment was something around 80% when we were there. You can imagine. I remember we saw one gentleman on the side of the road with a glove in one hand and a hammer in the other on a pile of rocks, and his job was literally making gravel by hand. That was their reality. They were surrounded by death, surrounded by difficulty and struggle. And yet there was this group of women that every morning, it's around 5 a.m. they began, gathering in prayer and rejoicing and hoping in the goodness of God. And what was remarkable was not that they were more spiritual than me, but they beamed with joy and with gratitude in the midst of circumstances that would seem so desperate. And I can only think that's because hope was at work in their lives. We read of this hope throughout the Scriptures. Psalm 146, for example, reads, Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eye of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow. But the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Now as beautiful as this is, this is a psalm about joy being found when you're oppressed, when you're hungry, when you're a prisoner, when you're blind, when your body's broken. Because your hope is anchored in who God is. Again, that expectation of good based on the character of God. That same hope is on display in, in one of the most unlikely places in Habakkuk or Habakkuk, I think there's still an argument over how you pronounce that. Almost everyone misspells it. There's two K's in the middle, not at the end. So here he is facing the reality of Israel's impending destruction. God's allowed, because of their unfaithfulness, this army to come at them. He knows that what lies ahead of him is going to be desperate. It's going to be It's going to be difficult. What does he write? He's honest. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. That does not sound happy, does it? Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine... And the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall. It says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And by the way, he wrote this to be a song. Even in the face of having his world turned upside down, he writes that even if all the crops fail, if the livestock is gone, in other words, if there's no food or no source of income, he will rejoice in the Lord. 
He will be joyful knowing that God is his Savior and strength. So similar are these words to those of the psalmist and and to Paul's words. And to Mary's words as well. At the center of the Christmas story is this idea of hope. This hope that is powerful. This hope that can affect healing. That brings joy. That gives life beyond survival. And yet again and again and again, this hope is not found where we expect it. It's not hope realized because everything's going so well and so easily. No, it's hope that shines because things are so difficult and maybe seem so hopeless. I see in Mary's song a few clues for us on how hope is developed. First thing is, is hope comes oftentimes from remembering. From remembering God's faithfulness. Whether that's going to the Scriptures for us and, and thinking of history or remembering our own history. I still have a Word document. I think it's 18 years old at this point that documents the things I faced that were insurmountable and how God brought us through it. And I keep that because sometimes there are still mountains, there are giants, there are things that seem overwhelming. And just going back and remembering what God has done is such a powerful thing to recenter me on hope. By the way, that would be a really fun exercise as a family or for yourself to think of some of those times this afternoon and just to to remember the ways in which God has been faithful. Because that remembering so often brings us back to remembering the goodness of God. That we can expect good. Hope comes from remembering. Secondly, in Mary's song, I see that hope comes from humility. I love her response, uh, calling herself a servant. I don't know that hope can happen in the midst of entitlement. We think we deserve a bunch of stuff. Usually that leads to disappointment. Where hope is often found powerfully is in a a humble heart that recognizes everything is a gift and all of those good things find their source in God. And I think sometimes when we find ourselves struggling uh, with hope, there's this hard thing that sometimes we need to look in the mirror and, and ask, am I kind of expecting everything to go good for me compared to everybody else? Am I... Maybe with a little bit of entitlement. Humility often increases hope. And of course, hope comes from continuing to believe. To believe in the midst of a storm. To believe in the midst of unanswered questions. In the goodness of God. In the character of God. And so the question before us this morning is, is, what is your hope in this morning? Has it been misplaced? Is it in a place that disappoints you? What is your hope in? And how is your hope doing? It's okay. You know, Christmas is a time of remembering, I I believe, one thing specific, and it's summarized in this word Emmanuel, this idea that God is with us. There are really four incredibly powerful words 
you are not alone. Whatever you face, you don't face it alone. God hasn't forgotten. God is faithful. That idea of Emmanuel, God with us, that is what we celebrate. Christmas is a time of being reminded that hope, in fact, supersedes circumstance. That hope isn't waiting to come to life when everything's good, but it can be found right now. Christmas is a time of recentering our hope, believing that God is not done. Celebrating that God is good and faithful and that we have an inheritance and a future in Christ that in no way can be damaged or diminished. Now, as I think about stories like the one I opened with, you know, Joe Simpson's story of survival, Shackleton's story of self-rescue, they're awesome, but it's because they stand out as outliers. Oftentimes, the circumstances don't work out that way. And yet that living hope brings us to something greater than survival. It gives us an opportunity to really fully live this life before us. This life in Christ. This belief that ultimately, no matter what I face, I can expect good because of the character of God. And that hope, my friends, brings something greater than survival. It brings joy. It brings a fullness to life. And I'm convinced that all of us need more of that hope. Some of us are in dire need of it. In fact, I would imagine some here this morning, your circumstances might be really hard. I know some have health issues. Some have family struggles. Those are real things. And I don't mean to diminish those circumstances. But sometimes we allow ourselves only to see the darkness and to forget the goodness of God. So I would encourage you with three things that I think God gives us. One of those is connection, that idea that God is with us. Sometimes we come back to that just again by remembering who God is and what God has done. Remembering the promises of God. But that connection that we're invited to. Secondly, we're given support from one another. God gave us this community. I think oftentimes it requires a certain amount of humility, doesn't it? To come to our friends and say, I need your help. I need you to pray with me. I feel hopeless. I'm lacking joy. But yet we have this support in our community of faith. And that's part of what God has given us is one another. That we can hold one another up. We can encourage one another. That's the idea very much means give courage. We can remind one another of hope. So God gives us connection with himself. He gives us one another as support. But I think there's this other piece that sometimes we need to go back to in remembering that God's also given us a purpose. My daughter's studying existentialism right now. In high school, as a sophomore, I'm impressed. She's reading Kierkegaard and Sartre and some heavy stuff. But one of the core tenets of existentialism is this idea that life is absurd. Not very hopeful. And yet we're told very clearly in the scriptures that you and I were created for a purpose. That God intends 
to work in and through us in this life is part of His good. Sometimes when we come back to that or we return to believing in that, it's like a light in the midst of dark circumstances. And so this morning, if you're lacking hope, if you're struggling, if you're walking through difficult things, I would encourage you to go back to that connection, that relationship with God, the God Emmanuel who we celebrate in Christmas, to reach out to one another, to ask for help. And so often, part of getting through our circumstances is to see beyond our, ourselves that we have a life of purpose, that we're called to love those around us, that maybe even the difficult things we walk through, if we'll allow them, God will make good of them and serve those around us. Let's pray. Father, may we not misplace our hope. I pray for those here this morning who face difficulty, who face struggle, hardship, and disappointment. God, would you give us eyes to see your goodness and your faithfulness? Would you refill in us that expectation of good based on your character? Would you give us the courage to pray for more than relief from our circumstances? but for closeness with you and an ability to love others. We ask you to bring good because we trust in your character. Amen.